And now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Erica Phillips. Erica Phillips is the managing editor of the Los Angeles Business Journal. She was previously a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, where she covered the global supply chain, everything from tariffs to container ships to e-commerce. So please give a very, very warm welcome to Ms. Erica Phillips. All right, and I'm going to introduce our esteemed guests. Uh, Ed Lemer is an economist and statistician at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. He also serves as a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and has been a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve. That's Ed. <laughs> sure, yes, clap. <laughs> um, we also have Gloria Gonzalez Rivera, an economist at UC Riverside and current president of the board of directors of the International Institute of Forecasters. Welcome, Gloria. And lastly, Jerry Nicholsberg, an economist at UCLA Anderson and director of the UCLA Anderson Forecast, which leads economic modeling and forecasting for California and or for the California and US economies. That's Jerry. <laughs> It's like be before a basketball game when we have everyone run on one at a time. <laughs> All right, so um, we're going to have some fun tonight. Thank you for joining us. We're gathered here to talk about a truly uplifting topic, the next economic recession. Um, we'll start by having some of our economists here on stage offer their prediction. Or actually, you know what? I'm going to not do that yet. I'm going to have uh, Ed, I'm going to have you tell us three questions. What is a recession? What causes a recession? And are we currently having symptoms of an oncoming recession? Okay, that's great. So um, if you read the business press, you get the impression that two negative quarters of GDP growth is a recession. But in fact, there's a group of PhD economists at the National Bureau of Economic Research who get together and look at images of the economy and try to decide when the economy is behaving abnormally. So really, you should be thinking the economy has a healthy state and has an unhealthy state. And the right way to think about the unhealthy state, it's a period of unwanted idleness. Idleness of labor in the form of elevated unemployment rates, idleness of factories with lower capacity utilization, idleness of office buildings with unused offices, idleness of apartments with, with vacancies in the apartments. So this feeds into what is the theme of today, which is are you ready for the next recession? Idleness is something you should all worry about, whether it's your personal idleness or your, somebody in your family who are losing their jobs. Uh, we'll come back to this again. But that would, to me, be the critical definition of recession. And it identifies some of the important things that you need to worry about and prepare for the next recession, not to worry about idleness. Um, what causes a recession? So we've had 11 downturns in the U.S. economy since World War II, and there was one that's associated with the end of the Korean War. So the D Department of Defense had ramped up GDP spending as a share of GDP to something like 14% during the Korean War. And then the armistice was signed in, uh, I think it was June or July of 1953, and the DOD spending was cut dramatically, back down to 8% in a very short period of time. <clears throat> that's, we had what I would call a Department of Defense downturn in 1953. <clears throat> so what, that, what part of the economy in that case was the idle part? Well, that, you know, you got all kinds of work being done in Detroit, creating uh, the equipment that you're going to use in warfare, and all the spending that the U.S. government was doing was funneling men, money out in all different ways. That disappeared. And, and um, 
you had that elevated uh, unemployment rate. Then the other one, the next one that Were is... Were you going to go through all 11? No, okay. just two. <laughs> this, this one you probably experienced was the downturn of 2000. That was not uh, a normal downturn. That was what I would call the uh, internet comeuppance. We had a big boom in internet, and we had firms that had all P and no E, and there had to be some comeuppance at some point where the economy backed that off, that uh, excessive valuations. And that was the 2000. The, uh, that's two out of 11. The other nine have all been about housing. <clears throat> so what is it that creates the excesses in housing? It's low interest rates during the expansion provided by the Federal Reserve Board, overstimulating housing, making us all think housing is so cheap. Let's go get a loan and we'll go out and buy a home. And then instead of building what be the normal rate of one and a half million units per year, it starts to go to two million, even beyond. Then the Fed <clears throat> says, um, you know, this isn't looking so good. Maybe inflation is coming. Let's raise interest rates. <clears throat> so the elevated interest rates kill off the housing sector and the whole rest of the economy uh, goes into the economic downturn. Now, is that... <clears throat> so how, so oh. I'm, I'm just saying that the um, expansions don't die. They're murdered by the Fed. I see. You had a question? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, is the... So nine out of 11 were, were housing related. Are, are those concerns present right now? So housing is not uh, abnormal. So I, I think the economists use the word shock. Uh, shock caused a recession. But I think a better way to think about it is the economy becomes fragile. Certain sectors in the economy become fragile. And then things like changes in interest rates by the Fed can really cause huge problems. And the housing sector is not fragile right now. We have very low building. We have less than uh, normal building now for about four or five, maybe a whole decade. Millennials not buying homes. Uh, they're, they're just not out of control. So we've done statistical work. Gloria's going to talk about her own statistical work, I think, here in a minute. But we've done uh, data analysis to explore the recession risk. Okay. And we focus on two, three things. One, the age of the expansion. If you read the public press, they're all saying, oh, this is going to be the oldest expansion ever. And I find it offensive, the idea that being old means you're near death. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think there might be other things that would have an impact on it. Uh, I, and so I l allow that expansion age to be one of the predictors, and also the bond market. The bond market through the, the uh, spread between the 10-year Treasury and the three-month so-called inverted yield curve has been created by the Federal Reserve Board, where the short-term rates are higher than the long-term rates. And then I also use the, the um, junk bond, the spread between junk bonds and 10-year uh, and treasuries, and fold those into a model okay. that, that basically asks the question, how, how is the year before the, these expansions, or before these recessions begin, how, how, what, what are the features that are present in that year? Mm -hmm. And is this year like those features? So I produce, thinking that way, a one-year head forecast and two-year head forecast. So I have good news, which is uh, the, the risk of, this rest, of a recession in this next year is very low. It's like 15 to 20%, kind of like background noise in the sense that a certain fraction of the quarters are always in recessions historically, and we're not elevated at that, in that sense because we don't have the problem in housing. We do have the uh, this flat yield curve, an inverted yield curve, but that isn't enough to cause a recession. And the good news is, 
for predicting one year ahead, age doesn't matter. So it's sort of like saying, um, once you get the cancer diagnosed, which is the inverted yield curve, it doesn't matter how old you are, the prognosis isn't looking good. Okay. So for that one year ahead, you, you want to see if there's some sickness that is evidence in the data. It isn't there now. I don't see any fragility. I don't see any uh, sensitivity. I think there's a small chance of, of recession this next year. 13 to 20 percent? 15 said? to 20 percent. Okay, folks. There you have it. Next year. The next year isn't much more. <laughs> there are your odds. So I would betting, say... betting people. <laughs> one, one takeaway, you should, from this event, there should be two takeaways. One is, what should I do when the recession is coming? The other takeaway that I try to give you, you have time. You have some time before you have to worry about it. But now's a good time to start thinking about that. All right, one of the things you mentioned was um, uh, areas where there are excesses. Um, and, and that those can be kind of our vulnerable spots. So, Gloria, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to, you know, are there any, any spots in the economy right now that look like there's, there are excesses? Yeah. Well, before I go there, I think I, I want to, to mention that among the forecasting uh, profession, uh, there is a subset of people who think that we cannot predict recessions. Uh, and think about it. I mean, if you were able to predict recessions with high probability, you know, the 15 or 20 percent, then probably the recession is not going to occur, right? Because if I tell you that the recession is coming in six months, as Ed said, uh, you could be preparing just tonight because in six months something is going to happen, right? So, so then uh, we have a sense that recessions are difficult subjects to predict, to start with. Uh, so the fact, and, and we are doing a lot of statistical work, and we attach probabilities, and you have heard already here a number, but take these numbers with a grain of salt, because these are one of the most difficult uh, macroeconomic events that we economists face. So having said so, um, even if a recession is not predictable, uh, what we are doing is monitoring the economy to see where uh, the risk is or may be coming. Right? So these are the excesses that Erika uh, was talking just uh, a few seconds ago. So then if you look at the American economy, I think uh, we are building excesses in debt. If you are um, looking at the stock market now, for instance, and you see the stock market after the bump that we have in December, now we are again all happy-lucky. And why, uh, why this thing is happening is because uh, we have such an innovation, such a good product ahead of us, and we are betting in the future. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that part of this run-up is not just thinking about a heavily productive uh, economy with new goods and new, uh, new, uh, new services, uh, but it comes from the fact that corporate America has been buying uh, their own shares in order to prop up the stock of their own companies. So then uh, you may think, well, why they do that? Because money is so cheap, that uh, a very rational decision, if you are a company, is to borrow money, yeah? Uh, money 
is very cheap these days. I borrow money, I go to the market, I buy the shares, and my, end, my, my stock suits up, right? So then we have to be looking at uh, how spread is, is this uh, phenomenon. And I would say that in corporate America is quite a spread. The other side of that, um, the other part of the economy is also the, the student loans. Uh, so the students are, uh, the younger generations are heavily indebted. So what is gonna happen when we have one of these triggers that Dad uh, uh, was talking about? People will not have the ability to repay these loans, right? So, so this is another thing that we are looking at. Um, so the, I wanted to just, just back up a, a minute or two to, uh, you were talking about corporations have been buying back their own shares. Yeah. And I, I just wanna kind of make sure that everyone understands what we're talking about. And, yeah. Um, you know, I think there was a, it was evident when there, uh, when the tax overhaul happened last year and, and companies had a little bit of money to spend, um, you know, various companies were making different decisions about that, um, maybe buying more equipment um, or assets, uh, you know, using it so that in a way that they could take more advantage of it. But many companies also were buying back their own shares, meaning they were giving, uh, giving that money to their shareholders. Yes. And I think, and I just wanted to kind of lay that out a little bit because of what you were getting at, just so that we're all, we all understand yeah. that. And, and, and how does that, you know, how does that forward innovation? How does that forward, you know, the, the growth of a company um, potentially, it yeah. does right? Is that, is that, that was the point you were making. Right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So there are opportunity costs, right? So it when, you, when you don't price, do one thing, it, you, don't, right. you, you don't do another, right? So, so then the use of the money that you could go towards productive uh, investments does not go there uh, as it should. Uh, that's, that's the point that I wanted to make, right? Right, right. 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 Okay. And then uh, the last point is that we have to be looking also at the international um, arena uh, because uh, Recessions can be exported, and recessions can be imported. So when you look at the international economy, uh, Europe uh, is going through a rough patch. Uh, you may have read in the papers uh, all this um, affair with Brexit, right? Uh, England is the second largest economy in Europe. Uh, so then uh, we are not alone. We are very interconnected, so shocks. Uh, can come from outside uh, to the American economy. Um, and then uh, our own uh, uh, political uncertainty, right? Uh, so then uh, we, don't know, we don't know what is gonna happen with uh, China, uh, trade wars or with Europe, right? So now all of a sudden uh, European cars are gonna have tariffs. Uh, so then think about uh, the possibility that uh, we could be importing recessions that happens in other areas of the world. Hmm, interesting. So, so we've got student debt, we've got some international concerns, these, these areas of excess, like we were talking about a minute ago, and um, I think uh, a wise person described it as uh, if, if you have a child and you feed them a lot of candy bars today, <laughs> uh, you know, what happens to, uh, what's your, your future scenario for that, for the health of that child? Um, I liked that analogy. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, Due to it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, uh, Gloria, you described a, a lot of kind of uh, 
possible doom and gloom scenarios. Um, now I want to talk about how prepared are we. Um, we know uh, the federal government has cut taxes, run up annual deficits, um, and trillions in national debt. The Federal Reserve is still unwinding the actions, as we talked about, uh, that it took to battle the Great Recession. And many Americans have quite a bit of debt, student debt, um, and otherwise, and, and haven't necessarily been saving in case of a rainy day. Um, so, uh, Jerry, you're going to get this next question. <laughs> I just decided. Uh, are average Americans prepared for the next recession? Are average Americans prepared for the next recession? Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to know what that, that mm. question means. Uh, savings rates are certainly up compared to where they were prior to the last recession. So in that sense, uh, perhaps so. Uh, also, equity in homes is building. And as Ed said, there doesn't seem to be an excess of homes, even though housing markets over the last few months have been relatively soft across the nation. You don't see foreclosures. You don't see real housing stress. That just seems to be kind of a, a waiting period. Um, but are individuals, uh, as, as in your question, the average American prepared for uh, elevated unemployment? That's a difficult question. Uh, the kinds of debt that certainly younger Americans have uh, with their student debt, which doesn't go away in bankruptcy, it still sits there, uh, maybe much less so. Uh, so. So that's kind of the uh, personal finance aspect mm -hmm. uh, in terms of whether or not our various levels of government are prepared for uh, the next recession, it depends on which government. Okay. Uh, so in the, you know, in the national government, we have unprecedented uh, budget deficits, unprecedented borrowing in a time of full employment, uh, which means that at such time as we have a downturn, uh, those are going to just balloon. And how is the government going to respond when they need to borrow an additional trillion dollars? Uh, so in, in that sense, I would say that the federal government not only is not prepared for the um, explosion of liabilities as boomers retire uh, with Social Security and Medicare, but also not prepared for uh, all the other expenses that they have to incur in the social safety net in the event of a downturn. Uh, but as we kind of bring it down sort of closer to home, uh, the state of California has been putting away money, uh, now has about $18 billion uh, available in various rainy day funds. Uh, we have done some uh, estimates of what's going to happen over a two-year period of a recession and what's required to keep the budget, uh, which the general fund is now $144 billion. The California state. The California fund. general, general $144 fund. $144 billion, OK. Um, and what, what's going to be required as we get uh, personal income taxes dropping dramatically in California. And it looks like about 30 to 35 billion over two years. And when you say personal income taxes dropping in California, you mean in the event of a recession? In the event of a recession, Because sure. California has. And, and yeah. so the type of system, right. if you want, just elaborate yeah. on so, that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the income tax system in California puts very heavy weight on the highest income earners. And the highest income earners in California are earning on IPOs, 
like Lyft and, and, and Uber and the and depend the like. on the stock market. Uh, on the stock market. Right. Uh, so with stock options, on entrepreneurial profits, uh, and on bonuses. And when there's a downturn and companies aren't doing as well and profits are down, those things drop pretty dramatically. And so does revenue in the, that's coming in from personal income taxes to fund state government. So we're seeing a, you know, a potential shortfall in the 30 to 35 billion range using a different methodology. The State Department of Finance comes up with similar numbers. We've got about 18 billion in reserves. But the other thing that's been happening with the state is it's been paying down debt and can probably come up with about 28 billion or 30 billion of that uh, with its new borrowing capacity which means that the state is not prepared to sail through. There's going to be cuts, mm -hmm. but it won't look like uh, what we saw in the Great Recession. So where does California fall, uh, you know, in terms of, in terms of its um, potential exposure as opposed to other states? Uh, are we in a relatively good position? Um, <laughs> do you have a sense of that? Uh, so, it, you know, it depends on, on what my colleagues have been talking about as the triggers that would send you into a recession. If it happens that it is a uh, trade war with China or with, the, uh, or with other Asian countries that are manufacturing goods that are imported into California, we're more exposed because we have a logistics industry that brings that in and distributes that all around the country. Uh, so, so we do have that exposure. In terms of housing, we really don't have that exposure. We need uh, approximately 200,000 homes per year uh, in California. We've been building 100 to 110,000. We've lost in the last two years 30,000 to wildfires. So we're way under building in, in, in housing. So that's not an issue here in the state. Uh, but we do have some exposures, particularly international exposures in our logistics industry and in the exportation of, uh, or the exports of uh, technologically sophisticated equipment. Now, Jerry, do you, do you know offhand, I, I don't, um, the size of the logistics industry roughly in California? So the, the logistics industry is about 7% of employment in, in California. It's been uh, one of the top three growth sectors and it's a very important sector because we see growth in the Inland Empire and growth in uh, San Joaquin County and Sacramento County. These are counties that were hit very hard in the Great Recession mm -hmm. and where their recovery has been slower and it's been mostly in lower wage jobs. So the, the logistics industry is very important for that part of California. So, um, so we'll... Uh kind of spread, spread the love here a little bit and have, have everyone offer your thoughts. Um, because we're getting at, at a topic that I wanted to cover, which is uh, which sectors might be more vulnerable. And like you said, Jerry, and of course it's gonna vary kind of from, from region to region, but we do have you know, this, this interesting development uh, in the Inland Empire uh, and, and other parts of the country with uh, a lot of e-commerce driving large developments of warehouses and a lot of low-wage jobs coming in and it, that replacing a lot of jobs in the retail sector um, and uh, potentially making retail kind of a vulnerable um, uh, sector with some excesses in it now, right? With some excess real estate. 
uh, not being used. So let's, let's talk about, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but let's talk about some of those specific sectors um, that, that might have some vulnerabilities right now. Uh, Ed, do you want to Yeah, I can talk about that. Rather than the <laughs> sectors, I, I would like to offer my advice to people in the audience how you should prepare for this next recession. Okay. That, that I don't think it's going to occur the year, no year or the year after. But <clears throat> the first thing you need to do is to assess your job risk. And uh, it's been shown that the people who are aware that their job is risky, then when they lose their jobs in the recession, it doesn't have as big an impact as the people who are totally surprised. People who are just getting out of college and are trying to find a job in a recessionary environment, they tend to carry that negativity for 20 years into the future. So if you're... If you're so there's uh, an attitude component to this. Is what or, you're yeah, it's... it's <clears throat> It's so distressing, you got your college degree, you thought you are going to weigh that and get a, get a good job, and you didn't get it, and you carry that negativity. It, it, the statistics have shown that. So my, my advice is for anybody who's employed, there's a BLS website, and you can look to see whether your job is cyclical or not. What's the risk in your job, the specifics of your job? And if there isn't anything, then you don't have to worry, except I think in this next downturn, you're going to see a lot of the force of artificial intelligence and robots. When cost control becomes essential for these firms, they're going to think long and hard about whether your job can be <coughs> taken over by a microprocessor. So you can't just go by the historical record. It's like, like retail is totally different now than it was mm -hmm. a couple decades right. ago because of that technology. So look at the historical record. But most importantly, to understand you've got to bring something to the labor market that a computer cannot do. You have to have wisdom, insight, creativity, analytical ability that AI is not capable of doing. Otherwise, you're going to get laid off probably when that next recession occurs. And it, but the, then that's for your job, but also there's your balance sheet you've got to worry about. And, and uh, in a recession, <clears throat> revenues are weak, asset prices are weak, and leverage is a huge problem. If you have heavy debt, doing a debt service in, in an environment which revenue is weak. Revenue means you're not going to get earnings, or if you're a business, you're not going to get the kind of typical revenue. And you're going to be stuck between a rock and a hard place, because you won't be able to sell that asset in order to retire the debt, because the asset value is way down. So you need to understand that in a recession, cash is king. So early in the expansion, leverage is great. You want to borrow like crazy in order to acquire assets, because those assets are going to accrue in value, and they're going to uh, throw off revenues that will do the debt service. Well, did we miss our opportunity <coughs> for that? Well, here, Gloria, Gloria has it. Yeah, I would like to. Um, I think uh, I would like to put some numbers into this yeah. statement that okay, good. Uh, that uh, Limer says. Um, I was looking at um, the net worth distribution across households in the United States. So we have about 126 million households on average. These are figures from the US Census Bureau. Uh, so then when you look at what is the median net worth, uh, going to what they just saying, um, the median is uh, you split the number of households, so uh, the median number is uh, you have 50% uh, of the households above that number and 50% of the households below the, that, that number. So the median network is about $88,000, right? You say, okay, well, if I'm in the median, right, the recession comes, uh, if I have this type of network, I can go to the bank and to use it as collateral for credit, for instance, right? 
But the problem, and that goes a little bit also to your question, when you say the average American or the median American, I don't think that we worry about the average or the median uh, American. I think what we worry is about what we call the lower part of the distribution. And when you look at the distribution of net worth, you have about one third of the households with a net worth of no more than $10,000. This is a lot of people. I mean, one third of 126, what is it? <laughs> Uh, 40? 40. <laughs> okay, all right. 40. So you have, uh, you have 40 million households. So multiply a household is an average of between two and three people, right? How many people you have that they are really, really unprepared? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we have to think about not as the recession in abstract, but at the recession as how many lives are at stake and going to its uh, point, uh, the only protection that you have is whatever savings or, or net worth overall you have, right? And when you think about 40 million households with a net worth of $10,000, what do we do? This is a huge problem, right? So, so uh, both, both Ed and Gloria yeah. make uh, uh, you know, great points into, and with some specificity on that. You know, what's, who, who are the people most at risk? Uh, if you look at leisure and hospitality, particularly restaurants. Right, so you're and, answering my actual question. Yeah, and, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate this. And, 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 uh, and at retail, so these are low-income jobs, but with increasing labor costs. Uh, and as we go into a recession, those, are, those sectors do tend to contract. But as we come out, there are today mm -hmm. robots that will do a lot of that work and a lot of automation. And so we're gonna experience uh, in the next recession cycle, uh, a contraction in the number of people who are needed in leisure and hospitality and, uh, and in brick and mortar retail. Uh, and, and so those folks are the ones that Gloria is talking about that don't have the resources, but also the jobs are not coming back. And so there's a real issue of uh, where do they move to? How do they get uh, the, the skills to move into other sectors, uh, what is the social safety net for those individuals? Now, I need to correct the facts because the, the, it's definitely the case the retail sector typically had not contributed much to recessions until about 1990, maybe later mm -hmm. than that. But in the last two or three recessions, it's been a big decline in retail, so it became cyclical. <clears throat> Limited service restaurants, full service restaurants, they've been plowing through recessions like they're not there. So the risk is that maybe you raise is that we're going to see the retail or the um, restaurant sector all of a sudden become cyclical as well because historically it hasn't. And yeah, because bars, of the, bars do very well the, in recessions. Hmm? <laughs> bars, yeah. And to deal with the pain. Being a psychiatrist yeah. is real good in recessions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. So, so uh, restaurants, retail, hospitality. Um, you know, these are some of some industries that in Los Angeles specifically are kind of pretty big drivers. So is there a concern here in L.A. Um, that uh, a potential recession could hit us pretty hard? Uh, so, the, you know, the, the brick and mortar retail, we've all talked about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Ed is less concerned than I am uh, with respect to restaurants. Mm -hmm. 
but there's a lot more technology today that can replace workers in, uh, in the restaurant industry than there has been in the past. And the increase in the minimum wage makes labor more expensive relative to that technology. So that puts them more at risk than they have been in the, in the past. So if we're talking about uh, Los Angeles versus like other regions of California or the country, um, you know, are there any like uh, risks that differ geographically from here to there? We've talked about um, some, you know, industry sectors, but what about sort of geographies? Sure. So, so in the, there are a number of saving graces for Los Angeles. One is that one of the driving sectors of the boom in Los Angeles has been the uh, coming together of technology and entertainment. And entertainment always does well, right? I mean, it's kind of a recession-proof uh, uh, sector. And so that's been a big growth sector in Los Angeles. Uh, and, you know, barring a trade war, certainly our logistics industry uh, is going to do fine, especially because there is an expectation in the next re recession. We don't have any data to base this on, so it's speculation but an expectation that in a recessionary environment, people are going to shop more online to look for better bargains. And, and that feeds into the logistics industry and away from brick and mortar retail. And you say, there's no data on this, but, uh, but it has some sense to it. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, kind of finally, and we talked about leisure and hospitality, which includes tourism. If people stay closer to home for vacations, that is, those who haven't lost their jobs. California is a wonderful place to go on vacation. <laughs> so Los Angeles, you know, is a little more uh, insulated than perhaps some other parts of the country in those areas. And the big postponable sectors where, where the jobs were, construction and particularly homes, and also manufacturing. Manufacturing is almost gone in this country. We're down to about um, 8 or 9% of our workforce there. So that can't contribute to the recession as it has historically. And construction hasn't ramped up the way it did in uh, 2003 and 2004. So if you go through the cyclical sectors, none of them is that extreme. And that's the reason why the recession chances seem pretty minimal. If you ask me where the biggest risk is, and maybe Jerry was making allusion to it, it's Uncle Sam's borrowing. And if the global bond markets decide that Uncle Sam is not credit worthy and they try to cash out their dollar denominated uh, treasuries, this country is going to be in deep trouble and it's going to be a very, very serious recession. And, and that's where the, the uh, indebtedness of the federal government is going to have a horrible impact on the US economy. Just terrible. But this is an unlikely event, Ed. You want to know why? Because the Spanish will always take our dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are there, you know? So, but, but, but to, you know, to Ed's point, um, the international tensions or the tensions between the United States and China uh, are really relevant here because, uh, you know, back in the days in the 80s when everyone was saying that Japan was going to become the dominant country in, in the world, then we had the uh, we had trade tensions with them. Uh, one day Japan didn't show up to the auctions mm -hmm. and interest rates spiked. Uh, so this is a countermeasure that the Chinese could use if uh, the Trump administration is, in their view, uh, in, in the Chinese view, too aggressive. Uh, a spike in interest rates 
goes to exactly what Ed was talking about, except it's not the Federal Reserve, it's, it's, it's in the bond market, not finding enough willing lenders at the low interest rates that exist today. But the Chinese suffer as well if they do that. If they start cashing sure. out their treasuries, the value of those treasuries is going to decline dramatically. So there's a kind of codependence between the United States and China that yeah. leads us to think maybe that's not going to happen. But, but if the central, other central banks, if the Korean Central Bank decides to switch into uh, some other currency, not dollars, and the other central banks start thinking about the creditworthiness mm -hmm. of the dollar, that yeah. could be a problem. Yeah. Not and so much China because of well, the codependence. Well, uh, I mean, Japan is uh, as large a lender, but, and, and I agree, that's the argument. We have this codependence, right? Uh, but, it, you know, it's not uncommon for codependence to break off be mm -hmm. between one another, and, and, they, and they're both heard in that, mm -hmm. but, um, but that's not out of the realm of possibilities. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, a couple things I, I meant to, uh, to have you guys speak to, we, we kind of breezed over, but I did want to talk about in terms of local, local economies, um, there are some concerns in California in terms of local governments, right? Jerry, I think uh, you've, you've spoken to this, um, some of the, the obligations that local governments have and, and how those might put certain cities at, at risk potentially. Sure, and we have, I mean, just in Los Angeles County, we have 88 local governments. Okay. So, so, so there's just a, a, a huge... 88 for, different ways to face right. a recession. In, in, in one county alone. Okay. Um, so some counties are following the, uh, or some governments are following uh, the, the state and putting away some reserves. Uh, and, uh, you know, but there are liabilities, partic particularly pension liabilities. Mm -hmm that don't go away in a recession. In fact, if a local government wants to shrink and they do so by offering early retirement, that just, that just increases their pension liabilities right. uh, and these pensions are underfunded. Uh, the kind of flip side of this coin, uh, in the 2008-2009 recession, you did not see property tax revenues drop like you saw revenues uh, property tax revenues in other states and other uh, forms of, of uh, revenue for governments throughout California. And the reason is, strangely enough, Prop 13. That so Prop 13 is the reason uh, property taxes didn't drop? And in many, and in many jurisdictions in California, they went up. And, and the reason is that even though home prices were falling uh, from 2006 on to 2010, uh, so many homes in these jurisdictions were Prop 13 protected and the ultimate market price was still above uh, their assessed price that their property taxes went up. And so you had much more stability in property tax revenues, hmm. uh, which you know, is beneficial to those jurisdictions that uh, are heavily dependent on that. So it's really a mixed bag when it comes to local government. Ed? I don't think of this as a recession issue. This is a fiscal child abuse. So <laughs> every level of government has been and, uh, borrowing in order to fund um, pension liabilities, in order to fund uh, Medicare, in the case of the federal government. And what that means is the future taxes are going to have to be higher in order to do the debt service, in order to draw down that debt. And who's going to pay those future taxes? The young people of America. And an example at the city level is the city doesn't have much cash flow to fix the roads in the city. 
So who is going to get the crummy old roads? It's going to be the younger Angelinos. So to me, well, they the, have so the, much money to spend on it with all their student debt, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what are we? It's not just. It's excessive costs of college education. I'm sorry for that. I'm partly responsible. It, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's, it's a huge debt. It's the weak infrastructure. It's an educational system that works for a small fraction of America overall, not everybody. And that means that those kids are going to have a much diminished future. And we're really writing the script for the next couple of decades in the schools and the, and the, and the local uh, <coughs> communities, and, and it doesn't look good to me to tell you the truth. So to your point, it, it, we might not need to be concerned just about a recession, but sort of a overall, the overall system in the, in the decades to come. Yeah, we need to have forward-looking politics. We need to think about what this country will be like or should be like 20 years from now. Not tomorrow or the day after, but 20 years from now, and make sure that the kids of America are going to be inheriting a really great outcome rather than mortgaging the, the whole future with all this debt at every level of government. All right, so I'm going to um, give you guys one last question, and this is a little out of left field, so if you don't have an answer, that's fine. But I did want to ask, you know, I, I'm a big fan of uh, the Olympics, <laughs> and we have the Olympics coming to Los Angeles. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of economic concerns here locally and statewide, um, but how, does, how, does, how would that play, you know, if, if we do go into the depths of a, of a terrible recession in the coming years, you know, are we going to be prepared? Uh, how, do, how does that play out? Are we going to be ready to host this giant event? So uh, I'll take a stab sure. at it. <laughs> and it I was, had to get an Olympics question and, in. <laughs> and, it, and it was out of left field? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so one, one of the advantages that Los Angeles has vis-a-vis -vis the uh, Olympics is that there's very little infrastructure for, for the actual holding of the games that needs to be built uh, because we have so many, uh, so many sports arenas for different kinds of sports throughout the city. And, and that was part of kind of the success of the bid. Uh, the other thing that the Olympics seems to be doing is speeding up the construction of mass transit in Los Angeles. So that's very much a positive for the city. Uh, but all of the studies of the Olympics, the Super Bowl, and, and kind of other right. big events that purportedly are going to you know, bring in billions of dollars of spending show that they really don't, and that at best they have a neutral impact. So I would say that the, the, the biggest positive would be a more rapid construction and build out of, the, uh, uh, of public transit in the city. And this is a great uh, stimulus. Uh, I mean, right. a way to get out of a recession is precisely to have all this public uh, spending. So in that sense, it can be considered a plus for the city if we were to be in a recession time when the Olympic uh, Games are hmm. coming. Mm -hmm. A pass. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So we're going to open it up to audience questions, and we'll have, oh, go ahead. Yep, that's exactly <laughs> right. But before we do, have a round of applause for our speakers tonight. <laughs> Okay, my name is Piotr, and my question is about the automation. You were talking about it, and uh, I think that uh, 
the threat of automation in the future is the society made of three classes. The class of owners of robots, the class of programmers, and the rest. The users. Owners, programmers, and everybody else. Yes, and okay. I guess you can uh, think of uh, the amount of dollars they have. And what can we do to prevent this stratification? Yeah, I, I have <clears throat> thought about that. So there's artificial intelligence and the real intelligence. Artificial intelligence means carrying out the code that somebody else wrote. That's mostly what happens in our high schools and the colleges, where the lecturer gets up and, and tells the truth, quote, quote, unquote, and the students are expected to write it down and regurgitate it on an exam. That's programming the students to carry out the code as written by the faculty member. That's artificial intelligence. Computers are way better at, at uh, responding to the code that the coder is writing. They have much better memories. So if you're going to expect them to get a job in this next century, you cannot rely on artificial intelligence. You have to have real intelligence. Real intelligence is taught by experiences where you solve a problem, like is the minimum wage a good thing in Los Angeles? You study that in some way. And so I think our colleges need to move out of the business of creating humans who have artificial intelligence and make sure the graduates have real creativity, analytical thinking, uh, uh, skills that the computer cannot have and will never have. My name is James Nash. I am a retiree. Uh, my retirement is going through the Directors Guild, and I, I think I'm in good hands for at least for the rest of my life. I have two children that we're talking about the future. One of my kids, my son is a West Point graduate, and my daughter is writing her dissertation right now for international public health. But I've been talking with them for about 15 years about what they need to do for the future, and you've answered some of those. And the one thing that I don't hear that I talk to my kids about is the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Yeah what that is going to do for them for the future. Every time I go to an economic conference, no one wants to talk about it. But it is huge. And my son, who's a West Point graduate, he says, Dad, you're right. The question is, why aren't we talking about it? The Asian Infrastructure Development Bank? The investment bank. Yeah, investment bank is very small. Uh, it is an agent of, um, uh, at least at the moment, an agent of uh, Chinese foreign policy in the One Belt, One Road program. Um, but compared to the World Bank and other investments, it's pretty small at the moment. What's the future of it? That's my question is to my, with my children, you need to watch out for the future of that bank. How is that? It's changing in Italy. It's changed Greece. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it is a, it, at least in that regard, and you know, what you're saying, it, it has um, allowed China to project itself which is something that, that China wants to do. Uh, but in other places, in Pakistan and Sri Lanka, uh, Myanmar and Laos, uh, there's a negative reaction now to it. So it remains to be seen how that plays out. Hi, my name is Wally, and uh, the question's for all of you. Like, in all your years of forecasting, which recession caught you by the mo biggest surprise? Like, when you look back, it was like, were there telltale signs, and you go, hmm, I, sh I should have looked there. But, <laughs> What, what about your models, the variables you use? What, what insights have you learned? And which, 
what, what, what caught you that threw a total left curve to you? So I'll make uh, the confession. I made a colossal mistake with 2006, 7, and 8 because the data were saying a recession was coming, but it appeared to me that we, instead of having a, a parallel recession in which all the sectors went down at the same time, namely um, construction and manufacturing, we were going to take care of the housing sector first because it peaked in the end of 2006. We had two years of correction in housing, and I thought, oh, well, we'll get the housing problem behind us, and then we'll move on and take care of the, of the manufacturing sector, particularly automobiles, but other consumer durables. So we'd have a kind of a longer, <clears throat> a more sluggish economy. And, and that came from the lack of awareness of credit default swaps and all the financial uh, fragility that had been built in. Uh, we didn't have measures of that fragility, and we had nothing to use to, in order to predict the recession. So <clears throat> we kept saying, even through the first half of 2008, this doesn't look like a recession. The early data on jobs in 2008 weren't bad. You had positive numbers. Those were revised later into big negative numbers. The second quarter GDP in 2008 was a positive, not a negative. It just smelled like a different thing. But then we had a terrible downturn in uh, the second half of 2008 and 2009, which was created, in my mind, by a colossal failure of leadership. It didn't have much to do with the real economy. It's that we had Bernanke and Paulson and, uh, I guess, President Bush. Where we had the three of them were going to Congress saying the Great, Re great Recession, the Great Depression is coming again. You better do something. Everybody got scared. And you had what was a fairly mild economic downturn, if it wasn't one at all and turned into something really bad. <clears throat> I think what we have uh, learned, I mean, going to your second point, um, I think we are better off from the methodological part of view on constructing models, on understanding risk and the construction of risk indicators. Uh, and then uh, we have uh, measures of interconnectedness in the economy that we didn't used to have in the prior uh, recessions. So I, I think we have a better lens to see. I don't think that we have um, a better measure of when the recession is coming, but we are saying, as, as we discussed in the in the prior minutes, uh, we were saying, okay, uh, we have uh, a fragility here. Uh, this sector is way uh, connected with another sector. So we have uh, points to look at. We are more aware uh, of, of risk than we used to be. Hey, um, my name is Steve Rosen. And uh, we're talking about the economy and talking about perhaps a little bit about futures with artificial intelligence and um, thing that we are ignoring is something called global warming. And if we don't do something about it now, uh, I, I guess our government has finally agreed that it exists. And they're talking about what, 1930, uh, 2030, uh, our economy won't be there. <clears throat> so I, how are you gonna, how is the economy going to change or how should it change? And as investors, what should we be doing? It comes back again that our politics is about tomorrow or the next day, but not about 20 years from now. We need to be more, much more forward thinking. I totally am concerned about global warming, as I am with the artificial intelligence. But we cannot have, we seem incapable of having a sensible political debate about the nature of our country in 20 years or 30 years. 
Yeah, but if you have to do it now. I totally agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a matter of a political will. So, I mean, uh, let's look uh, for the right candidates on 2020. <laughs> <laughs> well, to some extent, you know, there, there is quite a bit of investment right now in, in green energy um, and, and clean. You know, there's a lot of dollars in those businesses right now. And uh, I don't know, you know, what, what impact might a recession have on that kind of, not, not even fledgling, I mean, that sector right now. Um, that is that does have quite a bit of money flowing into so, it. So I'll make a, a quick comment on that, yeah. but then then want to come back to the, uh, uh, this question. The um, so so one of the things that is spurring green energy is the uh, subsidization of the adoption of of electric cars and and uh, and solar energy, and uh, you know when the government subsidies to government yeah. subsidies okay. and those are in jeopardy in a recession, okay. but what you know, worries me in the kinds of scenarios that you that, that you brought up in your question, uh, which seems to be what the best science is telling us, is uh, is sea level rise. So uh, a lot of arable land is going to go underwater worldwide, and that's where a lot of people live. And you take a country such as Bangladesh, 90 million people, and the vast majority of them live in a floodplain that's going to go underwater that kind of disruption to the world's uh, uh, socioeconomic and political system, I, you know, I think puts the future really at risk. Uh, within the US, we have the wealth to build some seawalls and move some people, and it's maybe, uh, uh, you know, a, not a huge number of people. Uh, the city of New York is looking at building a seawall around Manhattan, but the worldwide disruption uh, I think is more worrisome for the economy. We've got about five minutes left for questions, so just please ask if you keep your questions brief and our answers relatively brief so we can get to as many as possible, as I know we have a few more out there. Kelsey has the next question. Hi, Alison Ford. Um, uh, some publications like New York Times, The Economist, and others have expressed concern about relatively high levels of corporate debt, that even while household debt levels have gone down in recent years, corporate debt levels have gone up in recent years, and some have expressed the concern that perhaps this might be the next bubble that might burst the economy. I'm wondering, do you think, is that a legitimate concern? Is that perhaps overrated? Or how would you respond to that? Yeah, I think that's what we have said, that this is one of the um, uh, risks that we are um, monitoring. And that is very much a link to the uh, monetary policy that we have these days. So the question is, are we going to keep uh, this, the level of interest rates that we have right now? Uh, or some people are claiming we should go lower. So then if we go lo lower, I think this risk is going to increase. So these are very interconnected problems. So then we should be, we are watching it actually. And I think the Fed is very aware of this buildup. Hello, my name is Don Freeman. My question is, uh, is there anything understood about how in the next recession, different asset classes will behave? If we have choices today about how to hold our assets in stocks, in bonds, in real estate, how should we distribute our assets now to minimize the loss in the next recession? Early in the expansion, <clears throat> you should be heavy in equity and finance the equity acquisition by borrowing. Leverage is a good thing at that point because that asset is going to more than take care of the borrowing. But as the expansion gets older and older, 
you've got to take, lower down the risk, which is, is uh, lower the leverage, eliminate the borrowing, move uh, equities from equities more into bonds. My view is we're late in the expansion now. I don't think you're going to have a recession, but when the recession comes historically, that's like a 20% decline in your equity levels. So you need to recognize that nobody knows, everybody sitting here is telling you, we don't really know when it's going to come, but there's one out there, and it's closer now than it was a couple years ago. It's not a bad idea, particularly if you're in retirement or near retirement and you need that cash flow, you ought to be backing off the debt very substantially. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Pan. I actually had that question, um, but I also have another one. You had said that um, the nine out of the last 11 recessions were housing related. We know the last one was because of um, out of control lending. Were the other ones the same deal with housing? Or yeah, no? low, low interest rates supported uh, huge expansion of the housing sector. And it's over and over. You look at housing starts, it's just incredible. It's up and down and up and down. And you would think the Fed would notice this incredible swing in this important sector of the economy. And so, yeah, I, it's, it's, I wrote a, a uh, paper that said, they asked me to write a paper for the Federal Reserve uh, meeting in Jackson Hole on housing and the business cycle. I changed it for rhetorical purposes and said, housing is the business cycle. <laughs> <laughs> as a way of saying the Fed's got to be much more aware of the damage that they're doing to the economy through the housing sector. The Fed's view was we don't do sectors. We do aggregates. We don't do sectors. So that's why historically they haven't been concerned about housing. But they're definitely the culprits, I think, on the housing side. Hi, Saida Soto. Uh, there was a, a statement or, um, or a figure mentioned about the impact of raising the minimum wage on some sectors of the economy, while we also talked about approximately 40 million households living in deep poverty. So I'm wondering if you can talk about what that balance may be to ensure that those uh, communities uh, living in deep poverty now can have some sense of hope that in, in the next recession they're going to be okay and taken care of by this economy. They are not going to be taking care and they are not going to be doing well. Uh, that's what we are saying. So that's. Um, I think the, the signs that we have uh, in these previous days, I mean, I was uh, reading about Bank of America, the minimum wage now is $20 an hour here in California. This is great news uh, because uh, what we are saying all along is that to protect yourself, you have to have some network, right? But if the recession comes and uh, the companies start uh, uh, cutting costs, uh, are we going to maintain this type of salary? This is a big uh, question, right? So yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people at risk. Does, uh, what can we do? Uh, better salaries, it would be a, a great solution. Um, education, uh, knowing how to keep your finances. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, um, uh, there will be pain, and, and it will be by the lower part of the distribution of income. Yeah, so uh, my view of this is that our social safety net uh, is woefully inadequate, and, and so people who are in this lower tier, they have to work. The increase in the minimum wage does give them some relief, but they really don't have the opportunity to do what you need to do to get above the, the, the minimum wage, which is education and training. 
And, and so, um, so I think that we ought to be looking in a very serious way at something like universal basic income that would allow people who are at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder uh, to actually go and do that rather than uh, you know, having to work. And then if you work two jobs, you're just too tired to go to school. And so you don't get out of that cycle of poverty. Hi. Um, we discussed uh, corporate debt, but I was a little bit interested in uh, corporate surplus. I was just watching a documentary about um, how Amazon, they're trying to get into like the health industry. They're doing the cloud um, and how they just have so much like you know, ownership over so many companies. And, you know, Jeff Bezos is worth like 100 billion or something like that. I know Netflix made like um, 845 million, I believe. And so I guess my question is, is what, is there like an issue with the fact that there's so many companies or even just people who seem to have so much net worth and it doesn't seem like it's like circulating in the economy? Is that like an issue, the fact that, you know, like uh, Jeff Bezos has a hundred million, a hundred billion dollars, like in a bank account, you know what I mean? Like, is there an issue with things like that? I don't know. Yeah. Are you, are you talking about a recession issue or, a, right. or just a... Oh, yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> like, whether the disparity yeah, of like, wealth is... Exactly, like, is the disparity driving. of wealth also kind of like a rece re like recession-related <laughs> issue? Is kind well, of my, my view is that uh, we built the democracy of America in the factories of the 20th century because that created a middle-class... Uh, set of middle-class jobs that, that uh, produced an informed uh, electorate. And without manufacturing, we have this highly bifurcative economy that you described in terms of the few who ha are exceptional. Someone was commenting about the uh, kind of Wall-E story about robots doing everything except for one programmer who made all the money. Uh, I think that's a very uncomfortable situation for this country to be in. And I think it's a, it's a fundamental reason why our democracy is under attack. So we need to make sure that there's more of a level playing field, a levelization of the income around a country in order to preserve our democracy. Well, before we close, I'd like to thank the UCLA Anderson School of Management for making tonight possible with such a great conversation. Also, thanks all of you for joining us. It was great to see you all here, but the party's not over. Please stick around and grab a drink with us at the reception just outside in the lobby. If you park downstairs in the garage, you can grab a validation at the bar as well. And finally, a round of applause for our speakers tonight. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.